0: that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And for the past few episodes, we've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. We've talked about the evil days of chapter 12, actually, starting our study together at the back of the book. We saw the value of companionship, focusing on Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. In this episode, I want to go to the beginning of the book of Ecclesiastes and make certain that we all understand just exactly what it is that Solomon is doing in this book. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, Solomon wrote these words, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem vanity of vanity says the preacher vanities of vanities all is vanity Now, vanity comes from a Hebrew word that in its basic form means breath but it can also mean vapor or mist or smoke when the word is applied to objects or activities it refers to that which is essentially worthless empty and without value when it is applied to a person It refers to the emptiness or the futility of that individual's life. This being true, when we read the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it can kind of like be, wow, what's the point? But oh my friends, there is a point, a vitally important point that gives the whole book meaning. When Solomon wrote that all is vanity, he was describing a condition of life without substance or essence. He said nothing has lasting value or redeeming value. This is certainly a pretty bleak view of life. It kind of makes us wonder, well, why go on then? Is there really nothing that we have or do that is meaningful? However, the point that Solomon is making teaches us two eternal truths, if I may put it that way. First, much in this world is of no value. Our priorities can get way out of balance. We can, as they say, find ourselves majoring in minors. We can, as Jesus accused the Pharisees in Matthew 23, verse 24, strain at a knot and swallow a camel. It is hard for us to discover what is really important. Entire lifetimes have been spent in building up empires amassing great fortunes and receiving the praise of men. Vanity, Solomon wrote in effect, it is all vanity. But why? Is all the hard work we do worth nothing? Does not the accumulated wealth of life account as a testimony to a person's greatness? No, is what Solomon said. Secondly, and this is so important, only God can define and determine what is valuable. We have to remember that God sees the eternal. He knows that earthly priorities can often distract us from the eternal. He knows that wealth can get in our way of salvation. Look at Luke chapter 12 verses 13 through 21 with me and we'll see that this is so. The passage says, And someone in the crowd said to him, him being Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God also knows that things like family can serve as roadblocks between us and salvation. I'm thinking of Matthew chapter 10 and verse 37 where he finds, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Even more, God knows that lusts and pride can rear their ugly heads and keep us from salvation. Thus, we find such passages as First John chapter two, verses fifteen through seventeen: "Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes." and the boastful pride of life is not from the father but is from the world and the world is passing away and also its lusts but the one who does the will of god abides forever brethren and friends we are unable to distinguish the value and the vain without divine guidance what did god declare to be valuable the ending of ecclesiastes tells us in chapter 12 and verse 13 and i'll be reading from the king james version Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Of all that a person can do in this life, fearing God and keeping his commandments are the pinnacle of existence. With God at the center, our lives have great value. Without him, all is vanity. No one wants to feel like a failure, and beyond that, no one wants to be lost. Therefore, it is crucial for each one of us to prioritize our lives, our loves, and our interests. We must, as Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 tells us, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If we do not do this, then Solomon's summary will be correct. Our lives will be vanity. If we put God first, then it has meaning. And our very lives can be summed up in the words of Matthew 25, verse 21, again from the King James Version, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now let's read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Let's make it 3 through 9. Solomon wrote the following. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which is, is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. I want to focus on that last sentence, so there is nothing new under the sun. That is what Solomon wrote. He had noted, as we read, that the generations come and go as they always have. That's verse 4. He noted that the sun rises and sets, as it always has, verse 5. That the wind continues to blow, verse 6. And the rivers continue to flow, as they always have, verse 7. The fact that there is nothing new under the sun can be viewed in two ways. First, we could consider it proof of hopeless monotony. Choosing to see life as boring, unchanging, and wearisome. Or secondly, we might find the concept that there is nothing new to be comforting, stabilizing truth. There are some things that we can absolutely count on. Solomon wanted to demonstrate and clearly teach us a very important point of life without God, because life without God is wearisome, repetitive, and hopeless. However, and this is a theme that runs throughout the entire book, life with God at its center is comforting, exciting, stable, and filled with hope. As we consider the statement, there is nothing new under the sun, let us think about it as it relates to several truths about God. Let's start with that consideration by looking at Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is such a simple yet beautiful and profound statement. The depth of its meaning we're not able to fully grasp. In the beginning, God. He always was and he always will be. Hence the nature of God is not new. He is the all-powerful Lord of the universe and everything beyond it. He is transcendent, the creator, sustainer, and Lord of the world. It reminds me of Paul's statement to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. That passage tells us, And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things, and he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your poets have said, for we also are his offspring. God is the master builder of all things. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He exercises his lordship from heaven, for heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He is the Almighty with whom nothing is impossible. There is so much more about the nature of God that we could say, but it doesn't change. Surely there is great comfort to be found in the words of Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Consider also that God's work is not new. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 14 tells us, I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it for God has so worked that men should fear him. Jesus said in Matthew 24 and verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. False teachers may misrepresent the gospel or the plan of salvation, but they cannot change, actually change, any part of the immutable will of God. Don't you find that comforting? God's plan for man is not new. Back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we'll pick up reading in verse 11 and continue through verse 14. Solomon wrote He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it, for God has so worked that men should fear him. God wants man to fear him, to lead holy lives doing good and to prepare to face him in eternity. Thus the words he has also said eternity in their hearts. It reminds me of Micah chapter six and verse eight, which tells us, "'He has told you, O man, what is good, And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? The fact that God's plan for man is not new brings to mind Ephesians chapter one verses two through six, where Paul wrote, "Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing." in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. I can't stop there because The fact that God's plan for us is not new also causes me to think of God's statement that we find in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34. When Jesus said, Then the King will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let me close this episode with this point. The nature of man is not new. And let me state that the nature of man does not involve us having been created totally depraved, for we were not, nor does it involve us bearing the guilt of the original sin, for we do not. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 29, we find, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20 tells us, The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him. God created man upright, but man sought out many devices. This truth teaches us that it is not natural for man to sin, In other words, God did not create man so that he would sin. God created man with the free will, and man chose to sin. For it to have been otherwise would have been contrary to the very nature of God. Consider James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. This was true in Solomon's day, and it remains true in ours. Solomon, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, emphasized that each person should seek to do good and live to please God. The same truth applies today. God wants all of us to be conformed to the image of his dear Son and to obey his word. And with God at the center of our lives, it is truly valuable. It is truly important. Thanks for listening.